Players gather to cast powerful spells, some of the oldest and most powerful in the history of Magic the Gathering. Riftbolt, Lava Spike, Fire Blast, and many others. Battling head-to-head -head in brutal combat, they all have one thing in common, to uphold their legacy and the search for eternal glory. The Eternal Glory Podcast is sponsored by Cardboard Live, Bosch and Roll on YouTube, Thraben University, and TheEpicStorm.com. Why didn't I get my uh, website? Holy shit, you run a website? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, youtube.com slash C slash Bosch and Roll. <laughs> you can yes. find all of Brian's content there. Make and sure mine. to subscribe, uh, like, follow, give a thumbs up to all of my videos over at Bosch and Roll on YouTube. I think you have to be more energetic. And you can check out my website. It's theepicstorm.com where I play fair blue magic and not combo decks, and sometimes I play Pioneer and Standard. Anyway, <laughs> uh, as you can tell, we're in a little bit of a weird move. Quarantine has been treating us all in uh, very strange ways, and we'll talk about that in uh, just a minute. Um, but before we do that, a uh, quick shout-out to a couple of people. Uh, number one, Henrik Horkook, who has continued to support our podcast in just about all of the recent episodes. Um, we really do appreciate that. That helps to pay our editor, Phil Blackman at Force of Phil. Uh, and Henrik, if you have anything that you'd like to hear about on the podcast, uh, if there's any you know subject you'd want us to discuss a little bit, uh, feel free to drop one of us a line, and we'd be happy to see what we can work out. Yeah, thank you very much, Henrik. So, Bryant, how is life treating you? Uh, damn, it feels good to be winning events again. Uh, I've been playing lots of challenges as always, but recently my luck has sort of flipped to the other end of the spectrum. I top aided the Legacy Challenge this past weekend, but I've also won back-to-back -back vintage challenges. Not like top eight, but I won two vintage challenges in a row with Paradoxical Outcome. The deck is just so good. Right? I, I gotta chime in here, because uh, as someone who has top aided the last three consecutive Vintage Eternal Weekends with Paradoxical Outcome, why does anyone do anything else in that format? Yo, man, there's a land like that... that taps for three mana. Three mana. Yeah, but it doesn't cast Paradoxical Outcome. Paradoxical Outcome frequently generates more than three I mean, mana. I will give you that. Yeah, that is very true. <laughs> I just gotta, I gotta say. But that that's just my my tidbit. Uh, Theo is during awesome. The, during the Alluris metagame, I was uh, playing a Breach list that was uh, essentially Breach combined with P.O., and then once Luris left, I decided that I was going to create the most stock-looking breach list, or, I'm sorry, most stock-looking PO list I could. And then I just laid it all out, and I posted a poll to Twitter saying, hey, should I run Tendrils, or should I just run the Mentor Time Walk win? And even though Twitter decided Tendrils was correct, I went with my gut, and I cut my one of my favorite magic cards from the deck, 
And all of a sudden, I started winning more. So uh, Tendrils of Agony just isn't good enough for Vintage anymore, sadly. Yeah, Tendrils is like Plan C. Like, there, there's like the Mentor-Time Walk combo. There's just fair, like, Mentor makes some monks pass with some counter spells. There's uh, Bolus's Citadel, which can fling monks at your opponent for 20. Uh, if you can, like, repeal it and replay it in the same turn that you're going off, which is pr- usually not hard to do. Like, if you're off, you're off. Like, th- there's there's so many things that you don't need to cast Tendrils for. Uh, I, I only played Tendrils in the first of my, my three vintage top eights, and it's just been in the binder for since then. So, a part of playing all the good cards only, I cut Repeal. I think Repeal's kind of a trash card. Like, it's really cute. It's just, like, not very good. So I ended up cutting that. So in order for to blast it at all, anyone, I have to time walk as well. So time walk is secretly part of my win condition. Just please don't exile it. <laughs> right. That, that is the danger. Uh, but yeah, with my winnings, I actually picked up a set of Japanese foil monastery mentors. They're storm cards, right? I Guys, very much They have prowess? So. Yes. Monastery mentor is a storm kill. You gotta go to weird so places I can't, on the uh, Once again, when we can play paper magic again, I just can't wait to make some monks, turn them sideways. Might need to cast like some like portents or something to make that happen, but we'll Can you there. set your magic online to display in Japanese so you have Japanese <laughs> cards? I assume you can, right? You must probably. I've never looked, but that has to be there. Like people from Japan play Magic Online. I think we might be giving Moto too much credit here. <laughs> yeah, everyone must know English or card pictures to, to play. Yeah. So uh, for real life, sort of proud of this. In October, I bought a brand new used car. I paid it off uh, over the weekend, seven total months. Pretty proud of this. I was really worried at the time that like, hey, I'm going to have to take on this like four year obligation paying off this car. And I just pretty much dumped my savings and then paid extra money and extra money every month until it was paid off. So fairly proud of that. My stimulus check did a good number on my car payment as well. So stimulus check plus stream earnings uh, paid off my car way earlier than I was expecting to. It feels so nice. Yeah, I did the same. And then I made the switch from charcoal grill to propane grill. And because of that, I've been grilling like every single night the last two weeks. Taste the meat, not the heat. Exactly. Uh, I don't know. I just love grilling. It's fun. I I grill probably like four nights a week. Uh, When I bought my house two years ago, my parents got me a propane grill as a housewarming present. And it's seriously the best thing. I'm so glad you thought it was worth mentioning because having a propane grill is just so nice when people say like that's gas that's fire they're talking about propane (laughs) like that's literally the genesis of why of things that are great all right i have a very serious question for you brian yeah because i've done some googling and there's no correct answer but are you someone that shuts off the propane tank after each use or do you just leave it on forever i shut it off so because i'm afraid of exploding my house i do the same but you go to Reddit or grilling sites online and people are just like, what are you, a, a sissy? Why would you turn off your tank? Why would you wear a mask in public during a pandemic? Why would you wear a seatbelt in your car? Those are the same people. That makes a lot of <laughs> sense. And I was going to make the same joke. Yep. All right, Brian, how are things on your end? Uh, I've been watching a lot of TV. Uh, I finished The Sopranos in about three weeks, which is pretty good considering it's a uh, show that ran for seven years and episodes are an hour long. Um, 
if you haven't watched The Sopranos, uh, you may have heard about like the famous last episode, the the quote unquote cut to black. I had heard that said like a hundred times since The Sopranos went off the air in 2007, and I, I didn't know exactly what that meant. But it's seriously like the best ending of a show I've ever seen. I've been like thinking about it all week. It's just like, like I lay in bed at night like, damn. And it's just really good. Uh, I don't have time to explain it and I don't want to give too many spoilers, but uh, it's a very good ending to a a pretty good show. I'm going to pause you for a second, but that's how every show was in like 2004 to seven. Like Lost, for example, every episode is exactly an hour long and there's like 27 episodes per season and it's seven seasons long. That just doesn't happen anymore with television shows. We get like 13 episodes and there's like four seasons. Yeah, when I when I like boot up a new like Netflix original or something, I expect there to be 10 or 13 episodes and uh, they're either they could be any length like uh, what that one show uh, I think it was called like Love, Sex and Robots or something on Netflix, which is phenomenal if you haven't seen it. it it's a I didn't know this going in, but it's a series of like short sci fi stories and they're all animated in different styles, directed and written by different people. And like some of them are 10 minutes long and some of them are 43 minutes long and you don't know what's happening. You, you're <laughs> like every episode, you're just in a different place with a different story starting from zero and you don't know how long it's going to take. But it, the, the, the series is awesome if you haven't watched it. Speaking of awesome, I'm rediscovering Avatar The Last Airbender. I watched that when it was new in like 2003, I think. So I, I would have been in my mid teens when that was airing. And I, I like caught most of the episodes with friends and stuff, but I never really sat and watched it all like one after the other, the way that Netflix now allows you to do. And that show is real, real good. Still is. It's it's a fan favorite for a I'm reason. I'm going to lose status in the community for saying this, but I can't do that show. Um, it's a little too kid-ish for me. I watched a few episodes and it just kind of felt cringy to me and i know everyone loves it i could not get into that show for the life of me yeah so if you are like a serious anime invested person uh which i believe you are phil uh the it you have to remember that it's a show that was aired on nickelodeon it's a nickelodeon tv series and everything that comes with that is true uh it's certainly made for that audience but there's a lot of great themes like it it tackles like sexism imperialism like all of these crazy things is that in a way that kids can grok while also being pretty entertaining for grown-ups so uh it's not going to scratch your itch if you're like deep in the the genre but for for a casual watcher it's pretty great uh, my school year ends this Friday, which is kind of absurd because I have already been on break uh, with the quarantine for more than some summer vacation usually is. Like summer vacation is like an eight week thing and I've already been in quarantine for 10 weeks. So uh, basically all this means is I can stop checking my email, <laughs> but otherwise life will be exactly the same. I expect to see you in 3 a.m. challenges. Uh, that's not going to happen. I am an old man. Uh, so 
I mentioned this uh, in a previous cast, I think, that my uncle has a, a lake house in South Carolina that's just like sitting there and I would it would be like perfectly safe and reasonable to go to and remain socially distanced because like he doesn't live there. And I think that's going to happen pretty soon now that I don't have to do work anymore. So I'm looking forward to that. Any change of scenery is is a big boost these days. So on to some magic stuff in my life. I played the Lotus Box Legacy event. It, first of all, I want to say it's awesome that Lotus Box included Legacy in their their series. Uh, they did like a, a mini season, like multi-event, like earn points. They queue you for an invitational thing. And to get into the events, you just have to sub them on Twitch or be a patron on Patreon. Uh, so it's like $5.00 entry for all of their tournaments total it's a pretty great deal and it was the first event i had done on mtg melee which is a pairing platform that it it runs the tournament outside of magic online or arena and it tells you who you're paired with it tells you their username it like clocks like how long each player has to check in uh it it has like a, a results reporting system in it and stuff and it adds a step compared to just like Magic Online firing the tournament as you go. But if that's not an option for whatever reason, then it was a, a pretty reasonable stand-in. Yeah. I pl- yeah. I, I played uh, Bant Yorion. I, I figured I'd give it one last caca before the, the companion rule changed. And it, I... I performed exactly as I expected. I smushed all of the fair decks I played against and lost all the combo decks I played against. I was also multi-queuing the arena open, which I hate doing. I hate multi-queuing so much. Like I, I just can't do what I need to do in either game when I'm trying to play both. I so, feel anxiety whenever I like I'll like do a, like a draft in between rounds sometimes or something like that, and I just feel like I feel so anxious the entire time. I, I can't do it. I have no idea how those players like Yama Killer are like. Yeah, I'm in three events today, and uh, in between, I'm gonna like watch I don't know The Bachelor or something like that, or stream Doki Doki Literature Club in between rounds too. Like how how? Yeah, it it's crazy. Like I think you have to play a certain type of deck. Like, I, I don't believe that anyone can do that optimally. Like, I don't care who you are. Uh, I, I like I don't think John Finkel could play three moto drafts at the same time optimally. But I I, I do think that there is some level of skill where it, it's a different skill set. Like, it's not magic skill anymore. It's now like clock management or whatever. And deck choice becomes huge. Like, you can't play four color Yorion in two queues at once because you're frequently winning if the game if the match goes three games you're frequently like winning with like six minutes left on your clock which you don't you know can... magic user eco baron in then oh god uh i i honestly don't know how he does it uh yeah he he does like he was a big champion of uh band control in modern which is a deck that just wins with uro and just like chugga chugga you kill my uro i'll have to just waste more time until I have another five cards to escape with. Chugga chugga. And like, I tried that deck once and I almost timed out every single round. And I wasn't multi-queuing. I was recording it, so I did do a little bit of narration, but like, I wasn't on stream. I, I wasn't, well, it, it was, I, I don't know. Like, that shit stresses me out just in a single queue. 
So I, I don't know how these people do it and good for them. I know that uh, Cedric Phillips back in the day, he used to multi queue the most aggressive decks possible. Like he would just have like uh, ally aggro and standard. I, re- I remember this, that that example came up specifically because he wrote an article about grinding the cost to travel to a GP by multi queuing ally aggro. He just had multiple moto accounts, multiple copies of the deck, and just like in each hand was just pl- firing through leagues, grinding up GP money. But like that, that I can understand. But well, I was going to say Yama Killer usually plays decks like Aldrazi, you know, decks where you can two o a match in eight minutes or whatever. So I think that's part of the way that Yama Killer gets away with it. Like I'm sure the Yama Killer has a very wide range of decks that they can play. Like I don't know the real name, but they're very skilled. But whenever I see them playing, it's traditionally like something fast. It's never like blue-white control with one win condition. Right. Yeah. And and like those decks also like part of clock management is that like Eldrazi, you're not going to use up your clock. Like if you need to spend six minutes over in your draft and come back and like cast your Thought Not Seer, it's going to be okay. So uh, deck selection is huge in that world. And I was double queuing with Ban- or with uh, Four Color Yorion and Legacy and Luck of Fires and Standard, both of which are like deep late game, like phase three control decks with a lot of small decisions to make. And I was hurting. I was very glad to drop when I took my second loss out of the Legacy one so I could focus on my standard tournament, which, by the way, I won $1,000 in. Uh, if Yeah, it, it was pretty sweet. Uh it was the first arena contained big money event like the uh normally like MTG melee that i just described exists because arena doesn't have tournaments like that's that's why the form why the the app loop was created so this thing it let you it basically on day one, you paid like 4,000 gems, and it was best of one. And if you got seven wins before you got three losses, you queued for day two. And then day two, uh, each win got you like more gems. And then win number six got you 1,000 actual dollars, and win number seven got you $2,000. So uh, you played until you got seven wins or two losses. And I lost in the quote-unquote finals, I guess. I had six wins when I took my second loss, so I got a G. And it was pretty nice because you get to play at your own pace. You just queue up when you're ready for your match. You have like a window where you have to play them all in, but you don't have to wait for a round to pair or anything. And it was actually really smooth. There's a huge market right now for new exploration of online events. And like to give Wizards some credit, they are like definitely exploring new online options during uh, these difficult times. Yeah, uh, there's been a, a migration of Magic Judges in, to become Hearthstone tournament officials over the last, like, two or three years. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew that, but I'm friends with a lot of judges from my judging days, and a lot of them just work for Blizzard now. And uh, they have—Hearthstone is obviously way ahead of the curve because they're a digital-only game, and their their game has never had an in-game tournament system that's just not part of Hearthstone. Uh, you you just play like best of one ladder matches basically that's all that exists so every tournament is through an external thing so there's a lot of people in the magic community who now have a lot of skill in creating external tournaments because of their time working for hearthstone and i know a lot of them are putting in a lot of work right now to help us keep playing too that's awesome 
So it's sort of on the same topic, but would we like to discuss the changes that were dropped regarding the, uh, I'll use quotes here, PTQs on Thursdays being changed into a funnel for essentially an arena Grand Prix? I'm ignorant on the topic, so like, if you want to go ahead, but I know nothing. Yeah, same. I missed this announcement, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Uh, so I think Wizards announced that, hey, due to COVID, we're going to start uh, having PTQs fire nonstop. Like once per day, there would be a different format, blah, blah, blah. And if you do the math, it seemed like a lot of PTQs, because if you hold five PTQs a day, or I'm sorry, a week, rather, so each day of the week, uh, there's like a PTQ or whatever, you end up with a lot in two months. Like there's a lot of qualifications you normally wouldn't be giving out. Because if you think about it, I guess if there's a Grand Prix every weekend, you're giving out that many. But it was just a lot of invites, and people were wondering like how everyone was going to fit. And it turns out that it just qualifies you for a special arena event. And a lot of people were upset because they didn't have arena cards. Like, if I won a Legacy tournament on Magic Online, I don't have arena. Like, what what am I doing on arena now? So there's a lot of, like, people on Twitter complaining that, hey, I don't even have an arena account. Like, I wouldn't have signed up for this event had I known. So now they're giving, like, uh, air quote, like, God accounts to some people that are that just have all of the arena cards on them for temporary use until this event is over. But it just sort of seems like a, uh, I don't, I don't even know, like a, like a, they're pulling a fast one on people because like you promised them one thing and now you're delivering another. And because of that, a lot of these, uh, premier level events, these, uh, PTQs are now not firing like Pioneer is struggling to fire. They barely got one off last week. And then the Thursday legacies last Thursday did not fire. It was like 20 people short and people are like, well, this is because the format's bad. And I think. You could say that if you so choose. Like, I understand not everyone's happy with Arkham's Astrolabe. But I think there's also a bigger issue that Wizards didn't deliver on their promise. And that's a big reason to not play in uh, these events anymore. And then, like, the prelims, if you're not looking to play in these high-level events, why would you need to grind for 40 of the play points? or, Or the qualifying points, I guess I should say. And... The Saturday uh, morning legacy ones haven't fired for like two weeks in a row, but I also think it's because it's 7 a.m. on the East Coast. It's 4 a.m. on the West Coast. So it's like good for Europeans because it's like towards the end of the night, but I don't think it's an optimal time. Like I've slept through the last two, but I meant to wake up for them. It's just like 7 a.m. is pretty early. Um, I don't think it's actually the format's fault, and I guess I'm sort of stealing from Brian's thing here, but I think there's a bigger issue going on with Magic right now. And you can blame Legacy, but I don't think that's it. Yeah, I, I'll agree with that. Um, so it turns out I did know what you were talking about. I just didn't understand the lead into it. So uh, I am queued for that uh, Arena Pro Tour, and I'm queued for the Arena Pro Tour Final. Those are like the replacements for the things I was queued for in real life already. And it's now suddenly the thing that everyone was queuing for on Magic Online, like you said. And uh, what you were saying about like the legacy thing not firing because like and people saying it's because the format's bad is definitely not the case. A PTQ will always fire. Uh, I remember like I think it was Jared Silva saying like ten years ago uh, of the Star City Opens like, do you think we would get more players if we added 
$10,000 to the prize pool of a Star City Open or one Pro Tour invite. And everybody there was like easily a Pro Tour invite because that that just draws. Like if you don't play vintage, you'll figure it out. You'll put together shops or whatever and play fire a vintage BTQ if it's available to you. Like that that's just the draw. It's the dream. And now that it's been revealed that the dream is not possible in this world, uh, people don't want it anymore. Like you don't chase things that don't exist. And it's not it's not like a pipe dream where it's like, I'm going to chase it even though it's not realistic. It's it's literally not there. It's been told to us that we're not getting the dream no matter how hard we work. And I feel for that. Like I feel for everyone on Twitter who is upset about it because the, the Pro Tour experience is really unique. Uh, I, I've played in two of them. And at this point, I've missed another two that I was queued for uh, because of COVID and now they're moved online. And just... It is true, like the air of just like walking around, like walking past, like rubbing elbows with like John Finkel or like uh, I I got recruited to team with Matt Sperling and Paul Rietzel to work on the last one. And like that was incredible for me. Like that's not really happening. That's not the same way. Uh, Like. Like I I, I was at the last Pro Tour, I was like sitting there next to a match with Huey Jensen and uh, Huey's opponent was clearly like some kid. And the kid was like, wow, is it your first pro tour? <laughs> and like everyone around just sort of chuckled. And like Huey was just like super gracious. Like, no, I've played in a few, man. And like it, it was just one of these like funny, wholesome, awesome like moments. And that's not going to happen on an arena thing, no matter what. Uh, and so like I understand everyone who has been hurt by the dream of showing up to a pro tour and competing just not existing even if like the tournament does technically still exist but it exists in a place that doesn't exist so the experience is gone even though the opportunity to compete against the best is still there and i feel for all them uh that said i am not as outraged at the option like people saying that uh arguing that deferrals are free like just allow everyone accused to defer until further notice, like the next paper event, whatever it is, you can defer to that if you want. But the problem is nobody knows when that's going to be or like how many deferrals that's going to be. Like a pro tour is usually about 400 players. Like, are we going to fire a pro tour with 1800 players two years from now? If we allow deferrals, uh, is the pro tour going to exist in the same format two years from now? Like when we come back, when there are paper events again, is organized play going to look the same? Like, what if the only pro tours are just the MPL and rivals, but you have a, a 500 randos who have deferred to play in the, the MPL only playoff league, whatever it is. So it really, there's a lot of logistical things. It's not quote unquote free to defer a pro tour invite as much as it sucks for the people losing it. So th- this did become sort of a rabbit hole and, uh, that I wasn't planning on talking about. Sorry, Brian. No, no, it, it's cool. It, it's worth talking about. It's a, a thing that's happening and it affects legacy players because legacy players were super stoked to have a, a PTQ every week. That's awesome. And a lot of legacy players are like, what the fuck is arena? So uh, I, I feel for them. Uh, I'm glad Wizards did decide to grant God accounts because while that isn't... so. It, 
it is free in that it costs them nothing to do, but it does cost them what those players would have paid to fill their arena accounts. Which So the cost is not gouging people who queued for the PT, which I think is a, a fine cost for them to eat. So uh, we did end up getting God accounts. Unfortunately, though, I was a little salty about this, though I'm not going to like freak out because it's not a big deal. You have to play on that account. Uh, I I recognized a year ago that Arena was going to be the future of an avenue of magic, and I started grinding. I built my collection up. I have like some cool basic lands and like some sweet sleeves and stuff that I've won or grinded into, and like those just I don't get to play with my cards, which in the digital format matters a lot less. But uh, it's it's not nothing. You have to play on the account they granted you. Oh, so it's not your, like, I would have thought that they would have given, like, so let's say your username is Brian underscore Cobol. They don't put the cards on that account. They'll give you uh, magic, or they'll give you arena user one, two, three, four, and then you have to play on arena user one, two, three, four. Right. So I, I think that what they're doing is to make the the Pro Tour more watchable, because, like, I I'm Bosch and Roll on arena, but I'm like pt brian underscore koval in my uh pt account they they set the username they set the password like you can grind the ladder with it uh you can't enter the arena open with it like you can't play special events with it but you can like test and do the ladder anything that you win in that pat in that account any like gems coins or packs just stay in that account when it poofs away later uh there's no trading so there's no way to get it out but like and anything won there stays there, and you can only use it for the PTs you've queued for, and then it'll go away when you're out of PT invites. So that's the deal. Uh, it, it seems like a fine enough solution for, for the people who would have had to grind from nothing. Uh, like, Arena is very easy to have a standard collection on if you treat it like a, a daily quest clear like a a free to play pay to win sort of thing uh like like candy crush or whatever if you treat it like candy crush you log in every day or two clear your quest get your gold open your packs you'll have a standard account it in a month or two but uh from nothing just buying packs from the store and shredding them uh it would probably cost a few hundred dollars to get a competitive deck together so i'm glad they didn't make everyone acute for the pt do that So I, so my section went on for a long time. Phil, what's up with you? <laughs> yeah, we're still in the intro here. Um, yeah, this is still the intro. Buckle up, people. Uh, if I'm being totally honest, I'm a little bit down right now. The pandemic, plus various magic issues, plus not necessarily loving the legacy format as it stands, plus gestures wildly at everything going on in the country, um, all hitting at the same time. Uh, kind of hits morale pretty hard and uh brian you didn't say it but in our you know handy dandy show notes here i know you're kind of feeling similarly yeah uh i i mentioned this to you guys before we went live and i i spent like the last 36 hours debating if i wanted to message you guys and cancel the cast this week because it seems so silly to talk about magic the gathering with the state of the the world right now especially in america but uh I decided that, you know, for continuity, for some regularity, something to rely on in our listeners' lives, 
I can buck up and get my mind on something else for a while. It probably helped to get my face out of uh, Twitter and the news for a couple hours while we record this anyway. Yeah. So just as a side note for something that's going to come along at the end of the episode, we might spend a little bit of time at the end of the episode uh, talking about some of the you know heavy hitting stuff that's going on right now. Um, but we're going to set that aside for the very end and just kind of go on as if uh, everything else is uh, somewhat okay for a little while. Yeah, we'll give you a warning when we're ready to transition into heavy stuff if you want to turn it off when the magic's over. That was good. All right, so... Um, I see what you did there. On on the magic end, um, I decided to hold a brewing contest. Um, I thought that that would be something kind of cool and fun and entertaining to do. Um, so I posted this to my website today, and it's on like my Twitter and Facebook as well. Um, I want to invite people to brew around certain cards in Legacy that are, like, maybe a little bit underplayed and are, like, powerful and have interesting effects. And I'm going to select the the deck lists that I think are the best, and I'm going to showcase them on stream. Uh, So I did one for each one of the colors. So I'm looking for deck lists with Unearth, Anji's Ravager, Ominous Seas, Myth Realized, and Shifting Ceratops. Uh, this podcast goes live Friday, so if you're interested in doing it, you'll have about another week to submit deck, deck list to the contest, and then I'll sift through them and uh, play some uh, shenanigans on stream. Phil, I didn't know one of the cards you mentioned because I'm a heathen that doesn't play casual magic. What is Anji's Ravager? Okay, so it's two colorless and a red. I believe it is a 3-2, and I think it attacks. Is this the thing that puts an enchantment no, in a No, Storm Herald, um, which is a very good card Same against card. TES. Um, I believe I have a 100% win rate with that deck against TES. Um, but, don't <laughs> but don't worry about it. Um, Anji's Ravager says that when it attacks, you discard your hand and draw three cards. So it's a really powerful, non-traditional source of red card advantage. It's seen some play in red prison deck lists and in four color loam deck lists, but I think it like maybe has a little bit of potential elsewhere. So I want to see what people come up with. The other thing I've been super hooked on recently is this new video game called Monster Train. Uh, it's a roguelike deck builder, uh, sort of like Slay the Spire, and I've started like writing articles on that and uh, doing streams and YouTube videos for it. I'm just like totally enamored by that game it's just like beautifully beautifully done uh so that's kind of been my like side distraction from magic recently all right uh all right why don't we uh hop into feedback i'll let brian take the first one he's anxious i can tell (laughs) i'll take this one uh so there was a a reddit thread uh after our last episode um Bryant was talking about haymakers in Legacy and saying how he doesn't really appreciate that style of magic. And I called Tendrils of Agony the biggest haymaker there is. And that that spawned a Reddit thread of Storm players disagreeing with my point about whoa, whoa, it. Whoa, whoa. And the person disagreeing here is an Elves player, just for clarification. Uh, well, a combo player. And just for the record, uh, I... I was an Elves player for years before I touched a Brainstorm. I still have a completely foil Legacy Elves deck. I keep it up to date. I don't remember the last time I actually played it, but I do have an up-to-date... I'm up on the Elves technology, 
And I love that deck. Love it. I totally understand decks that are greater than the sum of their parts, which uh, Elves, Storm, all of those decks are. And calling Tendrils of Agony a Haymaker was a joke. Uh, it was a troll. I was messing with Bryant. Uh, my sense of humor was shaped by Monty Python. Uh, and if you're not familiar with the group, their whole thing is they're doing ridiculous things, but they're very serious about it. And they never like crack a smile. They never wink at the camera. They never let you know that they're joking. It, they are just deadpan serious being ridiculous. And I, that's just the type of humor. It's super dry and I'm about it. So if you hear me just like deadpan something completely outlandish, that's the joke. Please, you don't need to go on Reddit telling me that Storm isn't a haymaker deck. If I say something ridiculous, it's a joke. Keep that in mind when I make my next point. Storm is a combo deck that has to resolve 10 or more spells in a single turn to win with a big enough Storm spell. Burn is a combo deck that just has to resolve 6 or 7 spells over the course of a game, and every spell is a pretty interchangeable workhorse. Clearly, Storm players are, tr are willing to work harder in order to feel something. Thus, I am nominating the a name change. Storm is now called Haymaker Burn. I, I often say that Chromox is the ultimate haymaker, so I'm behind your analogy here. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yep, Haymaker Burn. I'm going to contact MTG Goldfish to get their uh, metagame analysis updated, and I'll talk to Star City Games as well for their deck database. Uh, I'm going to be on, on the crusade about this. Haymaker Burn. Well, maybe you can also talk to them about getting their vintage deck list names up because they're all just like UGR, Bar, uh, BRU, like for everything, including Dredge. <laughs> there's Bug, and then there's, uh, what's the other one? It's like UGB uh, for Dredge. Like that's all they are right now. It's like kind of weird to look at the vintage screen. Yeah, that is kind of tilting. I'm also going to send a message to the owner of the epic haymakerburn.com and try to get him to get up the times as well. Well, uh, if you go to blackbelcher.com, it'll also redirect you to theapicstorm.com. So I can just add that in there. It's only $16 a year. That's worth every penny. But what I want to happen is that theapicstorm.com redirects you to theepichaymakerburn.com. Mm, that's a lot of work. Although uh, I wasn't going to mention this, but I paid for a server upgrade uh, after our last episode. I had someone message me saying that they felt like the load time was a little bit long. So I did some research with Google PageSpeed and then another site to figure out what was causing my site to be slow. Turns out it was server response time. So I paid, uh, it's going to be another $220 a year, but I'm on a very fast server now. And the biggest thing was that it took 4.5 seconds for the server to respond to any request. So now the site loads any page in about two and a half seconds, which, you know, it's pretty good. Uh, it's not the fastest it could be. My site's a very large site, especially the homepage, but it's a lot faster. All right. Um, Brian, do you want to start off with our next one here? Uh, do I, have I to... put your name down as responding oh, to I, it I first. To, I have to scroll. Hold on, Phil. All right. Thought this episode was really well done. Constructive discussion from each perspective. I like that emotional reactions were present in regards to each card discussed, but you didn't uh, dwindle on it. And you kept the discussion moving with objective opinions. I love all Legacy podcasts, but you guys really took the cake for last week. Or, I'm sorry, the last week or two. I'm a little sick of all the complaining. I do wish that there was another competitive aggro deck rather than Delver, and I agree with Phil that the aggro white deck 
and Aggro Goblins were awesome to see at the end of the Lurus format. Although I do like having Del, uh, what's it say? I do. Although I do like having Delver style decks a part of the format. I understand Brian's opinion on Oko, but I still don't enjoy the play patterns that it creates. And with Oko and Uro within the format, I'm doubtful that other styles of aggro decks can exist, such as White Weenie from Villainous D on Reddit. So I'd like to think that we're pretty objective and uh, I'm not even speaking English right now uh, (laughs) with uh, our analysis on this podcast. And we try to keep it fairly high level. We tend to not go over small things like uh, tournament results for that reason. I like to think that we um, talk a little bit more about theory and why things happen and things like that. So I think that's a part of what this is. I don't know if you guys have any opinions on that. Yeah, uh, so uh, I have a a two-part response to this comment. The first one is that complaining gets tiresome really fast, like no matter what you're talking about. Uh, And I I firmly believe that the only thing worse than complaining about something you can't fix is complaining about something that you can fix. Thus, if we follow that to the root, there's no point in complaining about anything. So my life and happiness overall improved dramatically when I decided to stop complaining and start moving forward with what I have. Like, so what now what is like my motto in my head, like, oh, that didn't go well. I could sit here and bemoan how it didn't go well, or I could move on to the next thing. I could get something rolling. And just that mentality in general has been a big boon to my personal existence. The other part, this is the, that was the life part. This is the magic part. I did go on kind of a deep rant about Oko at the end of the last cast, and it wasn't planned, it wasn't scripted, and I imagine it meandered a bit, but I'd like to refine my thoughts about Oko here, because it was brought up. Uh, Oko does make games boring. That is his function. It, if your permanent is too exciting, I need to boring that down. Like, Chalice of the Void, that's a dynamic, exciting magic card. Let's get rid of it. Like, that that's the point of Oko. And like, if, oh, nothing's happening... Let's poop out a 3-3. Like, that's boring, but it, it's getting things going. Uh, and anyone who plays a lot of limited can affirm that unexciting board states can still be tremendously skill-testing. Uh, and the problem with Legacy, when you have a card like Oko, is that a large number of strategies are designed to slam exciting permanents, like Show and Tell, or any deck with Ancient Tomb. Like, just getting an exciting permanent into play before you should is a historically a viable strategy in legacy and it still is now but oko just re- exists as just this machine gun that repeatedly makes those exciting permanents boring like if your ancient tomb goes like uh trinosphere uh thought not seer whatever like and that that's pretty cool versus like ancient tomb elk Ancient Tomb Elk. Ancient Tomb Elk. Like, I understand why that's boring. And while I do remain that Oko is a skill-testing card and creates games that are deep strategically, it they are incredibly boring by function. And I would not be upset if someday Oko is deemed too good against too many of the options in Legacy. Like, I don't think its power level is too high, but if it does just nip off an entire branch of the cards that exist in Legacy, you know, Phil's sort of decks, 
then I can see where it might be a problem. I will totally agree that Oko is a super skill testing card in many cases. Um, I don't know how many times in the last two weeks I've said to chat or I've like said to myself while I was recording, I am 100% dead because my opponent played this Oko, and then they plus on the wrong permanent, and I'm like, oh my god. I win now instead of lose. Um, a really ridiculous example was, like, my opponent didn't plus on an ensnaring bridge and kill my Karn, and then I micro-synth them the next turn after they played the Oko, uh, because they couldn't attack and kill my Karn. Um, that's kind of like the absurd, like, push the absolute edge example, but there's a lot of smaller things like that, where my opponent could have played around the only thing that beat them, and they didn't, and so they lost to it. Yeah, like, I, I got into this a little bit in the last episode, I don't want to rehash it, but, like, if there's more than one obvious choice with Oko, the card is hard. Like, uh, playing just Bant Yorion this weekend, uh, I played against Eldrazi twice, and they had Chalice of the Void, and, like, I have a handful of one-drops, but Eldrazi's an aggro deck, so my life total's low. I cast Oko, do I plus on their Chalice of the Void now, get it out of the way, and take an extra three? Or do I make a food this turn, hope that they don't have Reality Smasher to just end my Oko before it answers the Chalice at all, and like just unlock my ones next turn and do a bunch of stuff? Like, There's a lot of decisions to be made if, if there's any sort of pressure or, or thought required. So uh, Oko is a tough card to play correctly, but I understand how it can ruin games if your plan is to do exciting, put exciting permanents into play. All right. Um, so the last comment that um, we wanted to talk about, um, I'm just going to shorten since we've gone on for quite a while already. Uh, but the core of it is that an interesting discussion would be the difference between a mistake and this shouldn't have been printed. Um, and the longer comment is on Reddit from Not a Prisoner. And we talked for about 10 minutes before the cast about, like, this very topic and, like, whether or not we wanted to flush this out into, like, something that we would talk about for an entire section on the podcast. Because a lot of times in on social media, like Twitter in particular, your character limits often ends up removing a lot of nuance in dialogue. And, like, this is a really interesting idea and a cool perspective. But ultimately, since we're trying to be, like, analytical and talk about results and talk about, like, mostly gameplay theory, and this is more of a, like, design theory thing, we're, we're not going to address it at length at the podcast. But I, we all, we disagreed on some of the, the individual things about the follow-up comments, but this, this was a really cool perspective. Yeah, for I, like Phil said, we're not going to go super deep into it, but uh, when everyone was melting down about Throne of Eldraine and all the cards in it, like Oko and Once Upon a Time, Veil of Summer, uh, somebody from another card game, uh, a, a, de a developer from another card game, I forget which one it was, it was some digital game that I've never played, but they basically uh, posted this long Twitter thread about how they were designing one of their like chase rares from their last set, and he said that they had like uh, a Discord sub-channel specifically for the toughness of this creature that they had printed. Like, it was printed as a 3-4. Everyone freaked out. It broke the game. They were mad. People saying, development doesn't know what they're doing. Why would they ever print this? And 
the guy just posted like screenshots of the uh, 12 to 15 pages of conversation that he had with the other devs about whether this thing should be a 3-3 or a 3-4. Like they really did work hard. They tried really hard. And it's literally a point of toughness different. And because it was a digital card game, they could just errat it to be a 3-3. Now it dies to their equivalent of Lightning Bolt, and it's not a problem anymore. That was literally it. It was just a point of toughness that they spent a ton of effort on. And the result, they came out on the slightly wrong side, and their fan base called them idiots. So just like that, the discussion of like a mistake versus shouldn't be printed, that's kind of the same thing. Like... The numbers on Oko are a mistake. The numbers on Once Upon a Time are a mistake. Uh, Veil of Summer probably shouldn't have been printed. So, like, there, this is an interesting conversation, but... Uh, Whoa, Veil of Summer is a delightful card. Take that comment back. I will not <laughs> shut up. <laughs> and this is why people love this podcast. We work together so beautifully. Yes. All right. Um, kind of using that as a pivot point, the, the primary core of our podcast episode today is about the companion mechanic errata and in case you've been uh, hiding from social media and the internet and you don't know what we're talking about here is the text of the current changes to the companion mechanic once per game anytime you could cast a sorcery during your main phase when the stack is empty you can pay three generic mana to put your companion from your sideboard into your hand this is a special action not an activated ability it happens immediately and can't be responded to. It can't be countered or stopped by cards like Stifle or Phyrexian Revoker. So, in terms of mechanics, if you have played against Leon and Arbiter before, this is the same sort of thing, where paying Leon Arbiter's ability is something that, like, you can't respond to, it doesn't use the stack, it just happens. The same thing is true of this uh, change. So I'm glad you mentioned uh, Leon and Arbiter because I feel like it's one of the worst interactions on Magic Online is the first time you fail to pay the extra two on something is it's just crippling. Uh, I don't like it. And I feel like it's almost similar to like Chalice of the Void where like there should be a prompt like it sh for Chalice of the Void. It shouldn't just auto counter anything. And I feel like for Leon and Arbiter it should give you a chance to pay two, especially if you're new. Like, how do you know to click on Leon and Arbiter, pay two mana, and then activate your fetch land? Like, that's just not Look, I'm not proud of how many wins I've scummed using that card. So I would like to see how uh, Magic Online implements this change. Because, like, the way that Magic Online did companions isn't actually how the rules uh, for a companion actually worked either. Because you're supposed to do it before you even, like... Uh, like do the die roll you're supposed to know what the companions are but they couldn't implement that on magic online due to how the game's coded so i'd like to see how they implement this if it's like a wish effect or how it's going to be or i don't know it's just going to be well, interesting to see how they code it i mean they have several special actions coded already like leon and arbiter we talked about every morph has a special action turning a morph face up is a special action that doesn't use the stack making a land drop is a special action like, there's a bunch of them that are already coded. Uh, so I imagine whatever the code is for Morph is just going to translate over to Companion. I'm I'm not a computer coder, obviously, so if that was an outrageous statement, I'm sorry. But it, it they have the ability to do that. And before it gets too far gone, what prompt do you want off your opponent's hate permanence beyond the text of the permanent? I don't like, like that challenge. Like, just like a reminder of like, oh, buddy, hey, pay for hey, your buddy, fetch land, sir. Gosh. I, I feel yeah. like if I cast a brainstorm and my opponent has a chalice in play, they should have to click on their chalice and then click on my brainstorm, not just auto 
Your shit's countered. Look, man, I already have to click oh, on my. Oh, you mean like a, a chalice check? Yes. Like, like a there should have to be check? some skill in playing your fucking cards. <laughs> uh, you're a madman. So, but all right. So, assuming we we decide that uh, chalice checks are required on Magic Online, what's the check for Leonin Arbiter? Because if you if you fetch and your opponent has Leonin Arbiter and they just say okay, you're cheating. Like that's not a missable trigger. It's a game rule. It's uh, like paying that. less than three with a Trinisphere. You can't like check if they remember it to let you cheat or not. But it's not intuitive at all. Like I'm just talking about like gameplay in general. It's not intuitive if I want to activate my fetch that I have to click on Leon and Arbiter, pay two mana, and then activate my fetch. Like part of activating my fetch, it should say pay two mana. But that's not what the card does because y- you pay two to turn the effect off for the turn. If you have two fetches, you pay two once, not twice. Wait, that's not... Wait, am I wrong? Yes. Is Arbiter... Yeah. I think yeah, you Arbiter... t- two for no, research. It, no, it, you can pay two to turn off Arbiter for the turn. Uh, I didn't realize that. I, yeah, I, it's not suppression field. Okay. Yeah, so it, it's just... That's why it's a special action and not like a Thali attacks. I won't lie, I faced Arbiter a lot in Modern, and I'm pretty sure I've paid two for every time I've ever searched. You got so got. The best thing is when... <laughs> They pay for the Arbiter tax, and then you, like, Restoration Angel blink it, and they have to pay again, because, like, the Arbiter has left and returned play, so it's a new entity. That's, like, the ultimate rage. Get them. (laughs) Yeah, I won a Star City Invitational doing that. It was nice. (laughs) Yeah, so, uh, to elaborate on the rules of that, so, combining what Phil said and what Bryant said, if what Bryant said was true, where it's just, like, it adds a tax, like, Suppression Field... Like, if, you're, if you f- crack a fetch land and pay the suppression field tax, like, blinking suppression field doesn't do anything. But if you pay the arbiter tax and then fetch and then arbiter gets blinked or they violate a second arbiter, you're, you're done. Like, you can't search. So, unless you pay two again or four in the case of a second arbiter. Like, it's, it's, it's just a different thing mechanically. All right, so kind of bringing it back to the new companion stuff. Um, at a glance, this greatly nerfs the companion mechanic. So the companions, to start off with, have a deck-building cost, uh, which is sometimes relatively steep. And in addition to that, there is now a significant tempo cost of paying three mana in order to put this thing into your hand. And there's also the chance that this gets interacted with now, whereas previously, previously it was like safe hiding in your sideboard. Now cards like Thoughtseize and Thoughtnots here might get a chance to interact with your companions as well. So it's not just this, like, very safe, keep it around for a rainy day creature anymore. Yeah, I I actually really like that it's sorcery speed, for one, so you can't just, like, end step, put your end on my hand, untap, cast it. Like, that's obviously a great choice for for nerfing it. And then... uh, if you are the discard deck, just lining it up for the companion. Like, if you're ahead with Grixis Delver or Eldrazi, you just hold that Thoughtseize, you hold that Thought Not Seer until they go for their companion, then just nip it. So uh, it's it's pretty cool that they didn't kill the mechanic outright. I'm glad that they went with an errata instead of a ban. And I think this one is pretty I'm good. really curious. All oh, right. God. So uh, the internet tends to disagree they uh, some people just don't like power level erratas which i realized that they got rid of them in like 2008 which is why we had an issue with flash but 
sometimes it's required. Like this isn't a digital game where you can just change a creature's power toughness. Like in magic, everything's paper or is usually paper. Uh, so it's t- tougher to make these changes. Like I remember when I was a kid, Dreadnought worked a little bit differently, Phyrexian Dreadnought. So I understand that sometimes things change and it's not super, uh, what's the, I like can't talk tonight. It's not uh, like if you read a card for the first time and it doesn't work how it says it works, it might be a little confusing, like impulse. You don't shuffle your deck after putting four on the bottom anymore. Uh, but most of us acknowledge that's how impulse works now. And that's okay. Uh, something that I read that I really like for a possible change to the companion uh, rule, this was before it was announced, was that the companion always starts within your seven, but you acknowledge that you're going to start negative one card down for the rest of the game. So if you draw your six cards plus your companion for the turn and you want a mulligan, you now draw five and then four because the companion is always in your hand and that's a real cost because now it affects your mulligans. I thought that was interesting and then it can be interacted with like Thought Seas or Thought Nuts here or whatever. and you don't start with plus one card, but that's not what ended up happening. I just thought it was yeah. interesting. That is an interesting solution, and it was clearly thought of by someone who really understands the magic rules. Uh, just imagine the logistics. The the complaints about like new people not knowing like what their card does if they read it. Like, how is a new player going to understand that at all? Like compared to just like oh I have to pay three uh, I like someone's gonna tell them that like so the, they'll figure that out eventually and it's pretty easy to understand it's it's very close to the original companion mechanic just less powerful but like something like so so do I like draw I I draw six every time but then I London Mulligan like because I Mulligan once down to five can I put Luris on the bottom if I London Mulligan to six like. There are so many folds of complexity with that fix that where this one is just like the card doesn't do what it says anymore, but it's still easy to understand if you've read the card. So uh, I I like that. And I can also say, like, I got a taste of being a a magic casual this week. Uh, I went to my sponsor store, Clubhouse Cards, and they hooked me up with a collector booster box uh, to, to open and. I opened it on camera. That's on my YouTube channel if you care about seeing packs get opened because I've never opened a collector's pack before and they gave me a box. And I have so many like foil and full art and like alt art companions right now that if I had actually spent $250 on that box and like uh, seven of the cards that came out of it are just unplayable in Magic now, like I would be super disappointed if I if I was like a real you know, person who spent my hard-earned money to own this product that I like and I want to play with rather than just, like, a, a spoiled, sponsored person. Like, I, I opened a uh, full-art uh, foil Zerda and a regular foil Zerda and a foil Yorion and a full-art Umori. And just, like, if all of those were just banned, that's that's such a feel-bad. Uh, Arata, I think, is the right call in this situation. I'm really curious about the numbers. And I, I mean this as, like, an actual I'm curious statement, not, like, an I think it wrong. I'm really curious about how much, if any, testing was done with this rule, like, specifically with the number three for various formats. Because it feels, like, really arbitrary, and, like, they could have picked different numbers, like, very easily. And the wording of their announcement is such that it said they discussed this and a few other errata possibilities, not 
be playtested with this and a couple other possibilities. Which... I get that, but they literally pay dozens of employees just to test things. I can't imagine, like, with how poorly Companion has gone so far, that they weren't just like, hey, the 12 of you or the 24 of you, we really need you to work hard on testing this rules change. Like, we've gone so far deep in the mud where we really need to get it right this time. Like, I can't imagine that they were just, like, super laissez-faire about this. And they're like, ah, let's choose, wait, let's roll a die, three. That's yeah, what we're going to do to fix it. Uh, yeah, so, so, like, the Twitter meme is, like, uh, Watsy went to lunch. Because of that one time where, like, when Pioneer was getting fresh bands every Monday, uh, and, like, the first time uh, Aaron Forsyth tweeted, like, uh, we're gonna go to lunch and then address this. Because <laughs> everyone is asking, <laughs> like, like, because it was, like, Monday and everyone's like, hey, when are the bands? When are the bands? We need to know this. And Aaron actually tweeted, like, we're gonna address it after after lunch. And now the joke is, like, uh, Watsy lunch is where these decisions get made, where they're just, like, sitting around at, like... Uh, I don't know, like whatever restaurant you go to for lunch. There's that Chipotle humping burritos like, um, so uh, three on the companions. <laughs> like we, we got an announcement to make in 45 minutes here. Like that's the meme, but I'm sure that's not true. Just like circling back to that uh, 15 pages of conversation about toughness three or four on that card in that other game. Like I'm sure they, they did. I, at some point, there probably is guesswork. Like, there's no science of, like, three is the perfect number. Just like uh, Richard Garfield, when asked, like, why did you pick seven as the opening hand size? He was just like, I don't know. It sounded right. <laughs> and, and, like, we just take that as sacred. Like, yes, yeah, seven is the perfect number of cards to start with. So, like, uh, I imagine they did put work into it. Do you guys ever play different games? Like we, before COVID, we used to have game nights with other couples and we would like go to play other games and you draw six and I'm like, this just doesn't feel right. Like, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So like in my youth, I played uh, a bit of tournament Yu-Gi-Oh! And that that game has a starting hand size of five. Hearthstone has a starting hand size of three if you're on the play and four if you're on the draw. And, and like, I don't mean like, both players get three, then you draw a card. Like, you literally get an extra card, and then you draw a card. So you're, like, up two. But, uh, the... So, like, I'm I'm a little bit used to that. What What's fun with me when I'm playing with, like, casual gamers is they don't understand card advantage at all. Like, any game that has cards, other than, like, Uno, you probably are going to be better off if you have more of them. It, it, unless the point of the game is to empty your hand. Uh, but... Like, so I'll be playing, like, I, like I, I can't even think of an example. Just some game with cards. And other people, they, they, like, draw a card and they're like, ooh, this lets me move two spaces forward. And they play it right away. And I'm sitting over there with, like, 12 cards. They don't know that I can circle the board if I want to. And, like, that, that is just really funny to uh, see happening among other people. I'll admit this, uh, that for the first year I played Settlers of Catan, I didn't realize, and like none of us in our play group realized that whenever anyone rolls a seven, if you have seven or more cards, you have to give up half your resources. So some of us would just sit there with all of the ore in our hand and be like, no, I would like five bricks for one ore. It was just like <laughs> kind of douchey, but also kind of fun. And then we realized that our world just came crashing to a halt once you have to give half of that back. Yeah, it, uh, it is fun when like, you're playing a physical game where it's possible to be wrong about the rules. Like in, in like the video game age, like, Oh, you just try something. It's like, Oh, that doesn't work. I get it. But like 
you can play a board game wrong for years and like uh my my friends i play games with uh they are very serious board gamers like they're like special ordering like this year's hot new game from morocco like it's in arabic but it doesn't exist in english yet and they can't wait six months like that that's where they are like they're monsters and they like printed off some english language rule book and they're trying to like read it while they set up the eighteen thousand pieces involved and i know with 100 percent certainty we're doing it wrong and it it's just like as long as we agree that we're all doing it wrong at the same time in the same way it's gonna balance out <laughs> so Maybe we'll get it right on the sixth yeah, playthrough. on that note, I've but... been playing, a, well, not recently, but before the pandemic started, I've been playing a lot of Gloomhaven with my girlfriend. There's a 51-page rulebook and a 121-page scenario book that go with this game. So, like, we 100% know that we're doing a lot of stuff wrong, and we, like, learn new stuff pretty much every time we play, but it's still a blast regardless. Yeah, if if someone wants me to play a game like that, I need them to know how to play when I show up. And like it it's so like the setup can be quick and then like they can quickly explain like this is how this works when we get there, I'll explain that. Like that's fine. But uh, I I would rather die than like sit there and watch someone like <clears throat> puzzle through the the 51 pages just to figure out where to put the pieces where to, so we can even start. And like that is that derails the night for me. So going back to playing games wrong for a second, I'd like to share a story from my childhood before I actually knew how to play Magic. Uh, I would play in this after-school club with another kid, and we had thought that, like, for example, this was the card that I thought was, like, the pinnacle of Magic. Do you know what Scaled Worm is? My copy was from 6th edition. It was, like, 7-6 for 7. Yeah. For 8. For 8, it was 7 and a green. So we thought that it lived for 7 turns, and it cost 1 green. (laughs) <laughs> because the seven yeah so i thought this thing was like the holy grail of magic and as a kid my dad had bought me baseball cards and i I cracked a mickey mantle card out of like an old pack and he bought me like a super thick case with like screws to keep it in i thought skilled worm was so good i took the make mickey mantle card out of this screw case and whenever i wasn't playing with the scale worm i would put it back in the screw case and then hide it so no one could steal the scale worm and then whenever i wanted to play with my friends i would unscrew the case and take the scale worm out because i just thought it was like the greatest card of all time (laughs) yeah those tales from the childhood days are great like uh we definitely played you could play any number of lands per turn and your draw step you drew up to seven like so your hand started at seven cards every turn and we would just like power through these games, and like in that world, cards like Scaled Worm are competitive because you can play at turn three. But the like uh, also like Dark Ritual, we would put like three Swamp tokens into play, or like Carpluz and Forest, who would tap it, take one damage, and put a mountain into play. Like because uh, like that that was one of my like uh, uh, pivotal moments when I realized that. Carpluz and Forest tap for one red mana right now. And just like when someone explained that to me, my brain just like short circuited and then jumped 20 years into the future where I was just like, oh my God, your life total is a resource. And having a land that taps for two colors is worth paying one life to get. Like all in one second. I just understood all of that. And it was a pivotal moment, but we definitely had some weird rules like that. I also once, uh, I opened a Felden's Cane in a 5th edition starter pack, and 
I I don't know if you remember this, but they used to make these encyclopedias. They had pictures of every magic card in them, and they would tell you the rarity of the cards. And the price, right? No, uh, I'm not talking about like Scry Magazine. I'm talking like they were called like the Encyclopedia of Magic. And it's like the first four sets or something. So there was just like a scanned like high resolution image of every card in Alpha, Beta, Unlimited, Arabian, and Antiquities. And it was just like a picture of the card and the rarity just sorted alphabetically. And I think it was put out by Wizards of the Coast so you knew what could exist like what cards existed at all and like that this was before colored uh set symbols so you so you knew what your rares were uh like i had all of those and the first one they printed had this weird section called discontinued cards where i imagine at the time these were cards they thought they would never print again so like the discontinued cards had like the power nine in it and stuff but it also had shit like a tog and reconstruction which is like a one blue instant from unlimited that you like regrow an artifact from your graveyard or something like it just had a bunch of like random shitters some that they have totally reprinted since and some that should have never been on this list to begin with and this was before the reserve list so i don't know what what this even was but in my like fifth grade brain a discontinued card was the rarest thing because there will never be another one and i opened a feldon's cane in fifth edition which my friend said to me, oh my god, that's a discontinued card. And I never mind that I never checked if that was true. And it was in 5th edition, which came out after that book was printed. So clearly it wasn't a discontinued card. And, uh, oh, I'm telling the story backwards. My friend opened the Feldon's Cane, and I had to have it. That, that's what's happened. I, I witnessed this conversation. Like the, uh, a friend had the fifth edition Feldon's K and another friend was like, that's discontinued. And then I just had to have it. And I just started throwing cards at him. I like opened up my binder, opened up my box. I like pulled out like a full deck that I had built. I was like this for the Feldon's cane. And he was like, I don't know. I don't think I can do it. It's discontinued. Then I just started pulling rares out of my binder and then I pulled a $5 bill out of my pocket, which in fifth grade is just like your life. And so there was there was, there was like a deck in story. a deck box, a pile of rares on top of the deck box, and a $5 bill on top of the pile of rares. And I was like, I need that Feldon's cane. And like, I still thought I was ripping him off. I was like, in my brain, I was like, I got to get this thing. Oh my God. And he... Hemmed and hawed. This was at like our after school program. Like we were there from like uh, three o'clock till five thirty when our parents got us. Like for hours, we we were just went back and forth on this Feldon's cane, and eventually he was just like, "No, I can't do it." And I was so mad. I was so mad when I put all my rares and my deck and my money back in my <laughs> pocket and my box. <laughs> but looking back, who's the real asshole? <laughs> That's a great story. I love Podcast that. is over. We're not getting any better from here. <laughs> yep, yep. Thanks for coming. We'll see you in two weeks. Well, I'm going to take this opportunity to pour one out for uh, Dranith Magistrate. Your time in this world was short. You were enjoyed by maybe two or three players on Moto, but, you know, you had your time in the sun, friend. Now you don't... I'll say this, Phil. Uh, like, that's a perfectly good human creature to put into your box of maybe one day. It's like, I think 
cards will get printed again that could possibly make Dranith Magistrate go. Like if like <laughs> I'm just saying, like it's within the they just reprinted a or just printed a better Yogmas well less than six months ago. Like there's a chance that something's printed again to make Dranith Magistrate a playable card. Like there's like I, I think people dismiss cards too early and then never reassess them again, which is something that Lawrence Herman taught me that I like it opened up my mind with deck building. And I don't know, like, it's a card that I could see being playable in the future. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, and Dranith Magistrate uh, is, like, I, I don't think it has a place right now, but it's funny you mentioned Yagmas Will and Breach, because Magistrate bricks those. Uh, if if there's ever, like, a Hypergenesis deck, if uh, Cascade comes back, if if they print, like, a Busted Suspend spell, like, Dranith Magistrate stops all of that. So, uh, the, this card still has some application. It wasn't the text of that card isn't your opponent can't cast their companion, but uh, that that is what it was used for. So it, it's worth keeping in mind that that card exists. Yeah. Uh, so obviously I was making a joke here, um, but I played uh, what was essentially a soldier stompy deck that was main decking four of those. And it did like randomly hose some decks here and there where I was just like, oh, you're all in on these two copies of Dreadhorde Arcanist, are you? Well, too bad. Phil, I meant to tell you, a couple weeks ago, I got paired against uh, a human stompy list, and my opponent had two of the uh, the white true name nemesis, and I could only think of you gleeing behind them. Uh, I, I mean, it wasn't you, but I envisioned you behind them just clapping, like, please kill him with this 3-3, three, three, uh, as I slowly died to humans underneath the chest. Ah, Lava Brinked. Lava Brink Adventurer. Not Adventurer, just Venturer. That was probably like Jazzy or one of the other people from my Discord. Alright. So, as far as like legacy particular stuff goes and this companion cost uh, of paying three, I think we're going to see a lot less of people just like jamming a companion into their deck just because they can or they can do so at a very low cost. Because like three mana by legacy standards is really quite a bit. So I think we'll start seeing a little bit less of things like the random Gigantha in lands, for example, or the occasional, like, Karuga Eldrazi-style deck. Um, I think this kills off a lot of the incidental companions. In the challenge uh, this past weekend, in round three, I faced Aspiring Spike, and they revealed Kahira to start the match, and I was just like, what are they playing? And I sat there thinking about it. I'm like, it has to be a deck without creatures. And I eventually pinpointed that it was either a control deck or Ant. And they ended up being on Ant. And I asked them, I was like, how was the Karuga? Or not Karuga, um, Kahira. And they're like, well, it won me my round two. I mean, it's just like a free card. I mean, I understand it's still just a 3-2 Vigilance, but sometimes that's good enough. I don't think we're going to be seeing that anymore. So... This has specific ramifications on the Garuda archetype. So as far as results go, from recent tournaments, the Turbo Garuda deck was doing extremely well, uh, putting two copies into the top eight of the Lotus Box exact uh, Lotus Box event. Lo- blah, 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 blah. I can't talk either, Brian. The Lotus Lotus Box, Box event. event. We're a good yeah, team, Phil. We work together. So, because you can't abuse LED anymore to cast your companion, you really lose out on, like, basically the entire deck. Like, you could build a 4x Gyruda deck that, like, 
tries to accelerate those out as quickly as possible, but you lose out on the consistency of always having your companion while also missing out on, like, LED as Black Lotus. And I think those two blows at the same time uh, it just means that the deck is done. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The LED still works. You just need three of them now. Yeah, Phil. <laughs> Instead of two. Sure, sure. Wow. Yeah, that that's true. Yeah, so I tried Gyruda a lot of shells in a lot of formats. I lost a lot of play points trying to make this deck work. And let me tell you, even with LED and Grim Monolith, it's hard to get to six mana. And getting to nine when LED has to be at a certain point in the chain, like it, it can't even be. Uh, I, like it's not even guaranteed. So that's that's probably going to kill the deck. Um, I am surprised by all the results it's been putting up lately because I have never done better than a 3-2 with Gyruda in any format. And maybe I just suck, or maybe I don't understand what the archetype's about, but uh, power to these people doing well with it. I do have one interesting story. It's it's from a dead format, but what are we going to do? I My last Gyruda League I played, I was playing the, uh, the Bob Wong list that he won the PTQ with, and my last round playing for 3-2 was against Anurag in the mirror. And we, we both revealed Gyruda, and I was on the play, so I won. And then game two, he was on the play with Chalice of the Void on zero, so he won. And then in game three, I had turn one Gyruda if I wanted it, but I could also pass the turn to play around Mindbreak Trap and Chalice of the Void. Like, the... The only the only interaction in the mirror is Mind Break Trap or Chalice of the Void. So I could play out all my mana, pass the turn, don't get Mind Break Trapped, hope he can't kill me, and then pass back. I win through everything. Or I could just fire and die to Mind Break Trap. So I decided to play around it. I passed the turn, and he just like, LED, LED, Gyruda, discard his hand that did not contain Mind Break Trap, milled, hit Thought Not Seer, which checked my empty hand like i had a land in my hand because i played out all my fast mana and then he had to pass the turn back and i zapped him so it, it was like i i played too smart for my own good and then won anyway <laughs> because he got unlucky so we we take those but uh i i won't miss this deck playing against it or playing it it's interesting because the guy deck i really don't think it was that good like i know it was doing well but I just don't think it was that good of a deck. I know that the Lotus Box event put two in the top eight, and then there was one in the top eight of the challenge this weekend. But if there was like a true Miracles deck, one that ran Swords to Power Shares and Pyroblast, those cards kick the crap out of Gyruda. Uh, so does Caracas. And Snow just like doesn't play those cards, or they don't have them at the same frequency. So if there was like a true control deck in Legacy right now, I don't think Gyruda would be nearly as good. And I think that's part of the reason, because Snow isn't the same as Miracles. I know they're similar, but they're not exactly the same. And because of that, if you look at the challenge results from this past weekend, there's like five or six combo decks in the top eight. And I think that's a result of Snow not being very good against combo. It's going to be interesting to think about this when it comes to, uh, I forget what they're called, the the big Magic Online events this weekend. The the They used to be quarterlies. Nobody knows um, what events are called. The periods now. I don't know what they call them. Just say three random M-C-Q-P-T-Q letters. MCQ, And that'll be the name. Barbecue. I like barbecue. We talked about grills earlier. We're going with that. Yeah, the LTP is coming up. The legacy LTP. Uh, so 
that kind of segues perfectly into our next conversation, which is whether Yorion is going to be worth uh, the slot now. Now that you have to, he costs eight, in, or it, they, the creature costs eight instead of five. The flying snake. Yeah, the bird serpent. And uh, I'm going to just segue directly into something I had meant to talk about, which is the cost versus combo decks, which is what Brian just talked about, how Snoko is pretty bad against combo. And, like, you can fill your deck with Force of Negations to uh, up the distribution of forces in your opening hand to, like, still uh, replicate a 60-card deck's distribution. But most combo decks are ready to beat one Force of Will, like, short of, like, a Belcher or whatever, but or Gyruda in some cases. But a lot of the time, you have to follow up. Like, they discard the first one, or they go for it once, and your force is gone. And now you need to cantrip your way to the second one, or to the lock piece, or to, or to the pressure to follow up. And having an 80-card deck really kills you in that department. So the, the, that second wave is so much harder to, to bring back. Uh, and I, I, I tried something with my deck building this weekend in the Lotus Box event, where... I realized the like two cards for this, two cards for that, one card for that sort of sideboard doesn't make any sense in an 80 card deck. And I just played four Deafening Silence, four Rest in Peace, uh, three Plague Engineer. It was just like all fours and threes for like specific matchups. And I I think that is how you would have to build it. I did steal a game off of Omnitel, which is basically unwinnable because I had turn one Deafening Silence. But Still, uh, I, I don't think that it's a reasonable combo plan like uh, to have 80 cards and expect to ever it's be It's not combo. just combo either, right? Like If you're playing against a Stompy deck and they keep a hand with two lock pieces and you really need to answer both or like your early game is just crippled, like you have to have like double Force of Will or you need like something like Force of Will into Abrupt Decay or something like that. And it's so hard. Exactly. Even against like Lands and Eldrazi, like... Are you going to play four back to basics to make sure you have one on time? Like that card sucks. The second one, like you want to draw exactly one and you want it to be on turn three when they've tapped out. Like that's, that's where you want to sneak in your back to basics. And like, I'm not going to play three of that card in a list of any size. I want exactly two in my control decks for those matchups where I want it. And I want to have it on time and I don't want it to get thought not seared. So uh, that's, it's really hard to make the, the top of your deck dance with your cantrips the way you need to when you have 80 cards. I'm going to be a tiny bit sad to see some cool cards that we're seeing play in these 80 card decks go back to not seeing play anymore. I did think it was like kind of awesome that these snow decks were running like four Strix and four Coatl. Like there was just a lot of similar cards that were being played where like you got a little bit of like old legacy in there paired with some of these newer cards. And that was nice to see. And there's like some innovations with like abundant growth and some things like that, like cute cards that were you were playing just to blink and act as like astrolabes five through eight. There was some exploration going on that I think was like really cool with deck building. And we're going to just lose that once Yorian quits being played because I don't think it's going to be playable anymore. Uh, like paying three to put this on top of brainstorm or pitch to force will is not playable in my opinion it's not worth playing any cards but i don't know like i did think that the deck building aspect was really cool yeah so i will say uh on the yorion front the uh the the decks that want yorion are going to be decks that could conceivably get to eight mana 
and do it all at once. Like if they have control of the game, they have a reasonable hand, they have like their force back up, and then they can just reload when they get their eighth land. Or against decks that don't have hand disruption, just like tap out on turn three uh, when you're holding up force and then hold up mana turn four and cast on turn five. Like that, those play patterns could exist. And I'm willing to be wrong about Yorion being unplayable, but uh, this is a big cost. There's also some other weird corner case scenarios where putting it in a hand actually might end up being better than just casting it in the first place. So, for example, if you're playing something like a Yorian D&T list, putting that card into your hand for three mana at some point when you can't do anything else means you can tick an Ether Vial up to five and then just like put the Yorian in play without actually paying five mana for it. Um, I'm not going to call that an upside because like the ability to just cast that thing on turn five is like insanely good. But there's some weird workarounds that exist that could keep this seeing some marginal amount of play. Yeah, wow. So having Yorion in your hand with Vial on five is nasty. Like you can just blink out all your stuff in response to a sweeper and then just they die. Uh, also, it can blink the Aether Vial to reset the clock so you're not just stuck with a Vial on five forever. Like that's I recorded sweet. a Yorion but, uh, DNT. I would have 5-0'd if I was not recording. It was just kind of one of those things where I was playing this really intricate game versus Painter, and I took the time to talk about my lines rather than like hurry on my play. And then I basically timed out with the win on board. And it was like, yeah, okay, effective 5-0 if I'm not recording. I'm, I'm happy enough with that. Uh, yeah, Caracas plus Yorion plus Vial on 5 is the new, I don't know, Splinter Twin. It's the new Splinter like, Twin. I could nerd out about this for a while because it's really cool, but let, let me just say that Yorian plus Caracas and Vile is stupid in terms of how quickly the complexity of your turns scales, because you end up in these weird situations where you're like, how many of my permanents do I blink? Because I need to control the triggers of not only my Yorian, but also my Flicker Wisp that is going to come back. Do I want to blink this Recruiter, or do I need to leave the Recruiter in play so that it comes back at a certain time later? How do I play around Sweepers? Uh, it gets real weird quick. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot of screenshots on Legacy Twitter with the uh, Esper Vile mirrors getting like crazy because that that deck is all about like blinking and onboard lock pieces and like tricks and stuff, Vile dancing. And I, I'm sure that Yorion plus Flicker Wisp that would melt my brain. I don't have any sort of reps or muscle memory to navigate that sort of uh, game. I do, and it was still like surprisingly difficult. The short version is that I was playing against Painter, and like they had like an ensnaring bridge plus Goblin Welder and Goblin Engineer, so I couldn't really get rid of it. So I needed to, over the course of like three turns, blink all of my stuff so that I could get like double Revoker plus two Flickerwist activations at the same time, and mapping that out was just crazy. Yeah, that sounds ridiculous. Yeah, basically, don't play DNT ever. <laughs> Good advice. I never podcast. Alright, do we have anything else to talk about magic before we get to our uh, current events section? Yeah. So. Alright, so this is the section where if you're here just to talk about magic, it's time to log off. Thanks for listening. Hope to see you in two weeks, but 
the the state of the world right now is in kind of a like scary pivotal really mind melting place and uh i i can't speak for my co-host here but i think that anyone with a platform should be using it to talk about this right now uh, i have certainly my twitter for my uh 2500ish followers this past 4 or 5 days has become uh police brutality twitter and uh trump is not a leader twitter and uh just martial law twitter and i honestly felt guilty on sunday posting that i did well in the arena uh open cuz it was just like who cares like i spent 2 days retweeting like uh police shooting gas canisters at protesters not shooting gas canisters into the crowd but like point blank shooting the canister into the face of a protester uh, like that sort of imagery and then like just pepper it in it's just like hey i i won a standard tournament did pretty well like i, I just like felt really guilty even tweeting that which is uh kind of heavy because my account is for tweeting about magic i can and, relate to that yeah uh, i haven't posted anything on the protest or the riots or anything like that um, I'm obviously on the side of like, don't be murdering innocent people, especially when it was over like an alleged forged check or like a fake $20 bill or something just fucking stupid. And I'm yeah. obviously on the side of the people on this one. Cause I'm someone that has like a little bit of decency, but I've been posting regularly about my magic life. Cause I feel like people don't really care what my political opinions are. Um, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but it's just like no one really comes to at Brian Cook to hear that I don't like Donald Trump or what say you. But I've also been reading from um, black African-American people that like they don't or at least some people don't care if you black out your photo. They feel like you shouldn't be trying to silence anything or anyone. Uh, today's Tuesday. It's supposed to be like the, you know, the sound there or whatever. But like and I'm like, well, I don't want to do that and then seem like an idiot later on or like, I don't know. Should I even post like today? I posted something about the art for tendrils of agony being for sale and how cool that would be to own. But I realized like, am I being insensitive? I don't know. Should I act like everything's normal? I don't know. Um, just yeah, leaves me feeling it, a little it, lost. It, it is like really, it, it, it's difficult to navigate. And like, uh, the thing I'm about to say, I already feel guilty for a being about to say it. Because I don't even, I'm not even sure if it's important. Like that, that's how complicated all this is. Like the the first like day of the after uh, George Floyd's death, it was like I was looking at all the stuff. I was sharing it on my personal Facebook that I don't really talk about magic on. That's for my friends and family and stuff. But I was like, do I put this into Twitter? Is this what this is for? And then a lot of my black friends, black people I follow, were like, Hey, white people, now is the time. A silent ally is no ally at all. And I'm like, oh, well, I, like, I didn't want to look like it was performative outrage from a white person and like, blah, blah, blah. I retweeted a couple times and then I never talk about it again. Like, I didn't want to be that guy. But then like people I, I trust and value the opinion of were like, hey, it's time to speak up. So I did. And then like uh, a couple days later, I saw tweets from the very same people that are like, oh, here are the white people with their performative outrage. They're going to retweet a bunch of times, then not talk about it again. And I was like, fuck, I didn't want to be that guy. And I don't think that I am. And it, it it's really, it, it is difficult as like a person with a platform that is not there for politics. 
And I'm also not totally convinced that uh, Black Lives Matter is a, it, in my brain, is a political thing. Obviously, it's been politicized, but like, it should not be a like, uh, like it is, it should not be someone's worldview that Black lives don't matter. Like that, that should not be in the, the pile with like trickle down economics and like taxation and like uh, fiscal policy of the government. Like those are political issues versus like. Well, I think it comes entire... back to being political when it comes to the presidential race in December, because right. we have a candidate who's a tyrant, who's truly evil. And then we have a guy who's going senile that can't keep his mouth shut for five seconds without saying something that's wrong, saying things like, you're not black if you vote for Trump. This should be a layup for Joe Biden, and he just can't do anything right. Um, yes, it, it it is. It, it It's like brain melting because we're talking about how horrible the world is. And we haven't even mentioned that we're in week 11 of a global pandemic lockdown in America. Like that's, that's like on the back burner. That was like, this is a historical, like once every couple generations, like once every hundred years thing that was, we were already in the midst of. And now it's like in the background because we're also, uh, the president is threatening martial law on states that won't crack down violently on peaceful protesters. And like among all that, like, Plus, you just have like thousands of people around the world in the streets protesting this, and they're probably sharing COVID among themselves. Like, you, you can't socially distance in a protest march. Like, that they're, they're probably wearing masks and stuff. And I, I'm glad that this movement is happening. But are cases of COVID among protesters going to spike two weeks from now? The answer is almost certainly yes. And it's like, we don't have time to worry about this thing that's ruining our lives because this other thing that is ruining our lives is piled on top of it. And the leader of our nation is like violently moving protesters out of the street, peaceful protesters, so he can get a photo op in front of a church holding a Bible upside down in front of a church that the the bishop who runs that church tweeted immediately afterwards I didn't know this was going to happen. I don't approve of Trump. Everything he's doing is bad. This is like this, like the person whose building he hurt people to get to doesn't want him there. And like, that's what we're dealing with. Uh, He has still not publicly acknowledged the over 100,000 American deaths to COVID. And now he's encouraging the military to crack down violently on citizens in the streets on top of that. So I have two okay. things to say. Oh, sorry, yeah. you haven't talked yet. Go Let's ahead. also not cast aside the media suppression that is going on right now. Um, I believe it was CNN had their news team arrested live on camera today. And there's a lot of similar instances of media people being attacked or forced to leave and shut off their cameras. And um, it it's starting to feel a lot like fascist America. And that's really spooky. Well, there was a, uh, a Minneapolis news reporter that was shot in the eye with a rubber bullet and she lost her eye. Yeah. that And that's all on, on camera. Like that they're literally camera crews and there, there's just tons of examples uh, out there of a camera crew filming because they're a camera crew and the reporter holding up their press credential, like, hey, we're press, we're covering this, 
and they just get shot on camera with like pepper spray or rubber bullets or whatever and or they just get like gassed on camera uh, and the like city governments uh there's have ordered their police to turn off their body cams for this like on top of that like they don't want any evidence of this existing for the historical record like they're they're sweeping out the media they're sweeping out the free press they're turning off the accountability devices that uh, were hard fought to even get on police officers just recently in our lifetimes i feel like this is why twitter and reddit are super important right now and that's usually where i get most of my news if i'm being completely honest like i don't watch tv and on Reddit, there, I saw a thread where this girl, she was in a hospital bed. She managed to take a selfie, but she was shot in square in between the eyeballs with a rubber bullet. And one of her eyes was so swollen and bruised that it, it was actually drooping down on her face. Uh, and like rubber bullets, like I don't care if they're non-lethal, like you've just destroyed someone's life. Like their life will never be the same, uh, depending on where you hit them, obviously. But like they're aiming for the heads right now. Yeah, so I saw something about rubber bullets, and the bullets are not made of rubber. They're made of metal, and they're cased in rubber, and they're meant to be ricocheted off the ground and, like, basically smack people in, like, the legs and ass and whatever and, like, scare them away. I, a, like, headshot with a rubber bullet is a lethal weapon. Like, they're just doing it wrong on purpose. They're out for blood. Uh, there's plenty of videos of people, like, as the, the riot cops like sweep down the street, dispersing people, enforcing curfews, just shooting people on their porch. They're literally in their homes and they're just like standing on their porch and they get hit with a rubber bullet and a gas grenade in their house in America. Something else that, uh, sorry, Phil, uh, something else that I've seen recently is uh, there's a few young people in like, there's a big Syracuse match of the gathering group. There's a few young people um, talking about politics. And an older gentleman was telling them to not cast their vote in December because these two people are Bernie fans and that the DNC didn't give them what they wanted in Bernie Sanders. So therefore, they should not vote and show the Democratic Party that this is what they get for putting up Joe Biden. A candidate is equally as bad as Trump, in their words, and that it will teach them for the next election to uh, to elect someone with more accountability that's more suited, for example. And it just drives me insane because that's not how the world works. And Trump has already put Brett Kavanaugh into the Supreme Court. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who knows how long she'll live. And if you don't make your voice heard now, in five years, she might not be alive. And if Trump gets reelected, that's another Supreme Court justice that he gets to appoint for the next 35 years. Two Trump-appointed Supreme Court justices can be for there for the most of the rest of our lifetimes. And that will affect change for decades to come. And like, these are the small things that matter. And like a lot of that's like voting in local elections. So that way your Congress doesn't get flipped to being Republican. Or I guess if you're a Republican, you don't want it flipped to be a Democrat. Just made your voice heard. And that way, like you don't have to live with these awful decisions. Cause I realized that like a lot of people will blame all Republicans for Donald Trump. There's Republicans out there that don't like him and that get uh, blamed for Donald Trump. And that's not fair because not everyone is a Trump fan. Um, there are decent people out there. I don't know. But but I just feel like if you're a Republican, you often often get um, like blackballed into people just assuming that you're a bad person when that's not the case. Yeah, and I, I would I have a number of uh, thoughts on that. First off, like I understand the like extremist uh, 
position that wants to punish the DNC for like blackballing Bernie and like just the DNC is you know, they're they're playing a giant game of chess right now and like the game theory call is like more people will be turned off by Bernie than will be turned off by Biden like uh, like I'm sure they've focus group aggressively and it's like which of these words don't you like and they're like uh if you ain't if you don't vote for trump or, or you ain't black and it's like uh, uh like oh, okay that's kind of annoying but doesn't really bother me it's like okay now socialism oh my god absolutely not like they're doing that they're doing that all the time with tons of types of people and i'm sure they've done the math and they've decided it's worth pissing off a number of people who would prefer bernie but will still vote biden versus the number of people who would never vote for Bernie. And like it, there there is like a giant political game at play here. Like any like those people you just mentioned, those Republicans who hate Trump, they're not voting for Bernie. Like no matter what. Like no matter how Trump gets. Like maybe they'd throw it away on third party or whatever. Or maybe they'd come over to another like crotchety white guy who looks like them and it hasn't said anything super extreme. Like maybe Biden will get some Republican votes, but like maybe not. Like I don't know. I'm super pissed uh, about the way Bernie was treated, uh, but at the same time, that ship has sailed. And the 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 second layer is that it's not just Trump. Like Mitch McConnell blocked Obama's Supreme Court appoint appointment for a year, for a calendar year at the end of his presidency. He just said, no, your, your guy's not getting a uh, Merrick Garland. He's not getting a hearing. He's not getting on the Supreme Court. That's the seat that Neil Gorsuch now occupies, appointed by Trump a year after it was vacated. Because uh, the Republican Congress is just like, yeah, fuck it. Yeah, we're, we're willing to burn it down on the way out. I think that, and, and that was before Trump was even the nominee. I mean, he was in the, the primary, but like, they didn't know yet that it was going to be like this actual crazy man in the front of the party. Like, I think it, if history looks back at this era, Mitch McConnell might be the most impactful human being on the planet. Like he has just fucked so many things for so many people to get his own agenda through. And uh, like the Supreme Court thing you talked about, like RBG, I don't think she's going to last another four years. She's beat cancer multiple times. She keeps breaking hips and stuff. I mean, she's strong. She's a beast. I love her, but uh, she's old as hell and she's not healthy. Uh, And if Trump appoints three Supreme Court justices, that's going to be that's going to screw us for a generation. Uh, I also saw a clip from uh, C-SPAN where it was of the, the, the Congress floor this week. When uh, COVID is still running rampant, when police are uh, killing protesters in the streets, those are the problems that our nation's facing. They were voting to affirm another Trump appointed judge, like in some like uh, district court in Texas or whatever. Like Trump has, in addition to the two Supreme Court justices he's appointed that for this generation, because they're both pretty young, he's also put close to 200 judges, conservative judges, into uh lower level courts and those are also lifetime appointments so the courts are stacked against anything progressive for the rest of our lives and that's just done and that's what they're still working on now while this country is burning on the note of history um i 
I'm a Latin teacher for anyone who's not aware, and I'm very careful when I teach my subject material to give the difficult themes their due space. So, for example, in Latin 1, about four weeks into the class, I start talking about slavery and the implications it had on the Roman world. And in Latin 2, I spend a lot of time talking about um, race relations, uh, especially between places like Rome and Carthage, which just had a deep-seated like racial, political, commercial hatred of each other. And uh, the Romans and the Gauls, for example, as well. Just so like I can be teaching students about these difficult issues and they learn how to talk about them and hopefully, you know, learn some things from that from that so we don't repeat the same mistakes. And it's uh it's really frustrating for me to see things that have happened so many times before happening in this modern age when there's so many times before it where we've seen similar things and you know, the warning signs were all there. Um, and we still reached this point. Yeah, and and that that is not an accident, which is the part that bothers me. It's like, and there are a lot of people who uh, go home and like consume, like binge their Netflix show, they eat dinner, they eat some ice cream, they go to sleep, they go to their work that they'll never you know get ahead at, and just like chug a chug it through their lives, and they never take to the streets or whatever. And, uh, I have friends who are educated people I work with. I believe they are smart. They hold graduate level degrees and higher. And they don't vote because they don't know what's going on. They they don't like, they're just like, oh, haha, it's all the same. And I'm like, how could you possibly think that uh, just looking at anything? And the answer is because they haven't looked at anything. Like in the social media world, you can bubble yourself out like, uh, you talk about an echo chamber uh, for like political beliefs. You can echo chamber for no political belief as well. Like you can just mute the people who are complaining about Trump and like, then haha, everything's funny. I only see posts of my friends at, at bars or at like the baseball game or whatever. And that's all there is in the world. And like those people have some responsibility that they're not living up to for things drifting in this direction. But the people at the top, like the Mitch McConnell's, like, I, I imagine if, like, you could give him a truth serum and just be like, Mitch, don't you see the 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 lines here compared to, like, Nazi Germany? And he, he'll just be like, that's the plan. Like, he knows exactly what's going on. He's not a dumb person. He's I'm sure he's a brilliant person, but he's an evil person. And the the number of things that have been just undermined and broken in the last, uh, like, seven years uh, like obama's second term when the republicans were in charge of the senate and the house leading into like the trump mania now it's it's existential for them like when you see people pissed that like the democrats won't fight dirty the republicans have broken the whole system and if they ever lose control of it they're probably going to jail and they know that and like they have committed crimes they they have literally broken our system and so I'd like to pause you old... for a second. I think there's also yeah. a bigger thing where the Republicans, one, they would never eat each other. Where the Democrats, if one of them is dirty or has done something awful, they they do something to remove them. That would never happen in the Republican Party. But also, right. like, Republicans, because there's less of them, I think that they tend to be um, more organized. So, like, every Republican that I know, 
votes in local elections. I know tons of Democrats that they're like, why would I vote in a local election? Um, where like they do the small things right because local elections they end up mattering, and I think that's just something a lot of Democrats skate by on until the general. I think that's a really good point. Um, like for someone who hangs out on Reddit a lot, like Bernie Sanders was the chosen one, right? Like he was Keanu Reeves. He was going to save the world, fix everything, and like if you had just been watching Reddit headlines, you would have thought like Bernie Sanders was a clear winner in everything. And then you go and look at election results and it's not necessarily the same as in that echo chamber. Yeah. And it's, it's a combination of like our individual echo chambers. Like everyone I know was a Bernie supporter for sure. But then like I was at work one day and one of my, my coworkers, my colleagues, someone on my team who I work closely with and I believe is a smart person was just like, like I said something about Bernie, like, haha, we're among friends. Obviously, we're all Bernie supporters. And she was just like, oh, you can miss me with that socialism. I'd vote for Trump before Bernie, and I don't want to do that. And I was like, oh, my God. And like, my entire opinion of her just changed on the spot. It's like, and 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 to me, she wasn't like this just like faceless ape on the internet just screaming about Trump. It was just like, this is a, a person I know and whose opinion I respect who just said she would rather vote for Trump than a socialist. Like, what does that mean to like the average American who's not in my echo chamber? So, and uh, that was, that was kind of shocking. Just to make things very clear. Uh, my preferred pick for this uh, upcoming election was not Bernie Sanders. I wanted Elizabeth Warren. I feel like she is a nice compromise between Biden and Bernie. She in my opinion, was more likely to get things done than Bernie. I feel like Bernie would have had a lot of people blocking him. That said, I would have voted for Bernie in a heartbeat than Biden or Trump or anyone else. Like, Bernie was my solid number two. I wanted Bernie in 2016, and that didn't happen. I just felt like this time around, Warren was the better candidate, and ultimately it didn't happen. But, say la vie. Yeah, this weird thing was happening during the primary where people were, like, like exit polling at primaries. It was like... uh who would you like to be president among these people? And people would be like, Liz Warren. And they're like, okay, who'd you vote for? Bernie Sanders or Biden. It was like, people didn't understand the point of the primary was to speak out for the person you think should be president. It was like, we've been told it's between Biden and Bernie. So we picked one of them. And like, uh, I agree. I think Warren would be great. Uh, I'm hoping Biden picks her as his running mate. That would balance the ticket for me in a way where i wouldn't feel filthy voting for biden correct me if i'm wrong didn't biden already say that he was going to have a black woman for his vp he said a woman unless he said like in the last couple days in response to the riots or something like it's going to be a black woman i can't think of her name but there's a southern um i want to say she was in like the house um that or like camilla harris from california i I didn't hear her name is yeah, I didn't hear an update on that. I, I just knew it. Stacey said it would Abrams, be a woman months is, ago. Right? Stacey Abrams? Pretty- yeah. Uh, I, I know for a while he was talking about uh, uh, Klobuchar. Like, she was in the running, and it was just like, no, please, no. Yeah, I don't like Klobs uh, very much. But uh, her name was Stacey Abrams, by the way. I just Google. All right. Anyway, we don't need to rehash the entire Democratic primary in the that that wasn't what the point of this was. It was just uh, I I think I have mostly 
vented the things I wanted to vent that uh, the world is shitty because of the people who are in charge and the people in charge are being extra shitty to make sure they stay in charge because if they ever lose charge, they're in a lot of trouble and they know it. So I think that uh, I don't want us to seem insensitive here. I realize that we are three white men talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and the politics associated with that. But uh, also, like, I would just like to state that, like, a black man was murdered for basically nothing uh, because some uneducated cop has an anger issue problem that had been cited with a history of, uh, like, overactive aggression against George Floyd. And like, I just don't want us to seem insensitive because we haven't actually spent a whole lot of, lot of time talking about the actual movement or the black community and how they're affected by this. So I, I don't know. I just don't think that we should just like talk about American politics. And I also wanted to point out, you kept on talking about the world. The, the world is a little bit bigger than the United States and the riots. I, I understand that at this point. No, the, the world is protesting. Yes. If you haven't seen international news, that's what I was talking yeah. about. Like, I understand that this is started in America and we're talking about American police. But the world is in the streets right now protesting for black lives. Yeah, I saw um, it was like a photo of the Netherlands earlier. But but yeah, like the, the George, like Brian said, uh, George Floyd, a police officer kneeled on his neck for eight and a half minutes until he died. Uh, the autopsy report commit like performed by the the state said that uh, he had hypertension and substances in his system and it was not related to asphyxiation in any way. And then a private autopsy two days later said, no, he was definitely asphyxiated. So there, like Brian said, a uh, a cop with a history of aggression, uh, multiple complaints against him that uh, Amy Klobuchar chose not to pro- prosecute, by the way, uh, he ended up killing this man. Uh, just just a week earlier, Ahmed Arbery was murdered in the street by uh, two uh, rednecks with guns who decided that they were cops. They went to make a citizen's arrest on this black guy in the neighborhood. Uh, just, you know, some houses uh, had been broken into recently and they saw a black guy and were like, yeah, you're going to get arrested by us, these hillbillies with guns in a pickup truck. And when he resisted their orders, because why the fuck would he listen to these guys? They shot him. And uh, just slightly before that, uh, Brianna Taylor was killed in her home. Uh, the police broke into her house in the middle of the night. Uh, on a raid looking for a suspect who they already had in custody, and she ended up getting killed in her bed. So these are just examples from the last, like, two months, like month and a half. Uh, This is all recent, and you could go back and back, uh, Trayvon Martin, and every all of, there's so many examples that we know about, and then the number of examples that I'm sure we don't know about, and the number of examples from before everybody had a cell phone in their pocket to get on camera is just... It's just like crushing to think about. And that's coming from white guys. I can't, I I understand that I will never understand what it's like to be black. And if, if like I, a privileged white guy feel this distraught and hopeless about the situation, I cannot imagine what a actual black person would feel in this situation. I could encourage everyone to do thing like one thing right now. It would just be take a good hard look at the world and consider how you've been viewing the world and whether or not you need to change any of your viewpoints 
like go on Twitter, go on Reddit, just look at some of the videos that are going around and ask yourself whether or not you're okay with the things that you're seeing. And if there's anything that you can do to work towards that change, whether it's as simple as, you know, educating one person, not letting that racist comment slip by that otherwise you might just laugh off. Just just think about the little things that you can do. And there's plenty of organizations that you can donate to if um, you've got money that you can throw at a problem that is very, very large and very, very out there right now. And I know that we talked about it in a magic-related context a couple episodes ago, but you can always change your opinion based on new information and become more informed and a better person. Just because you thought one way in the past doesn't mean you have to think that way now. Yeah, the uh, uh, there was a famous interview with one of the Beastie Boys where he was talking about uh, respecting women, uh, respecting other people, just trying to be a good influence on the world. And the interviewer said, isn't that a bit hypocritical coming from the fight for your right to party guy? And he said, I'd rather be a hypocrite than be the same person my whole life. And I think that's a great quote. And uh, it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to reevaluate. And there's a lot to evaluate right now. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the Eternal Glory podcast. We realize that this isn't something we normally do, uh, but we do think that this is a pretty serious situation going on in the United States and the world right now. And we just wanted to share our thoughts on the situation and show our support. Everything that we said here at the end was just kind of off script from the heart, just, you know, relatively full of emotion. So if we misspoke or anything um, during this final portion, there's there's no script here. It's just us kind of being real and talking about issues that um, we think are important. Uh, thank you all for joining, and uh, hopefully two weeks from now we'll have some good news to share and uh, maybe some slightly, slightly more exciting legacy things to talk about.